This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Talk number 24, August the 4th, 1982. By the way, before we proceed any further, I'll remind you that uh, tomorrow, August the 5th, is an interesting anniversary in the history of the United States. It was on August the 5th, 1861, that the United States passed its first income tax law. Because of the war, Lincoln and Congress passed a 3% income tax on all incomes over $800. This, however, was subsequently declared to be unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. It required in this century, an amendment to the Constitution, the 16th Amendment, to make an income tax legal for the federal government. The sad fact is that the 16th Amendment is perhaps the most dangerous single law ever passed in the United States because there is not a single restricting clause therein. Congress has the power to levy any kind of tax on our income, up to 100% or up to 150%, which would quickly deplete our capital. The 16th Amendment, as I said, does not have a single restricting clause. This is why, as I often tell people, what we are allowed to keep of our income is called an exemption. It is something that the IRS, by its sovereign grace, allows us to keep. It is now a matter of congressional action whether or not we are allowed to keep any of our income and how much we are allowed to keep. Anyone who doubts that we are going socialist has not read the 16th Amendment or examined its implications. It is the most revolutionary bit of legislation we have ever passed. Well, with that happy note, let's go on to a somewhat happier one. And on June 23, 1982, Personal Finance had a leading article on Is Your Bank Failing? And then it listed a number of the major banks in the United States in terms of three categories. Green for the safer banks, yellow for those that are not quite as safe, and red for those that are failing. However, let me read you what these categories mean, and I quote, To qualify for a green rating of bank's equity, or a saving and loans net worth must equal at least 5% of the institution's total assets. The Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Comptroller of the Currency have established this standard for commercial banks. Then, a commercial bank with less than 5% equity is graded yellow. In addition, a commercial bank that is losing money gets a yellow tag. Federal Home Loan Bank applies a similar test to savings and loans. The board defines a savings and loan as failing if its net worth to assets ratio falls below 3% or if at its present rate of operating loss the institution would reach zero net worth within a year. Well, none of those categories are very reassuring because certainly the green rating does not indicate a very strong bank, or a savings and loan for that matter. The Myers uh, Finance and Energy Report for July 23, 1982 gives a list of the, or rather, an account of the threatened Canadian banks and how dangerous the situation is in Canada. 
Harry Schultz in his letter for uh, July 14, 1982, deals with a danger also. And I quote, in the case of the monetary system, I fear a sudden big bank failure. They are always kept secret till the situation is hopeless. Then it's suddenly announced, which results in a chain reaction bank closure around the world within two hours. A banking Pearl Harbor. It is these out-of-the-blue events that are hardest to prepare for. Yet history shows most events caught the world by surprise, even if some knew of the potential danger. Then Schultz refers to what I just uh, cited, personal finance. He says, Personal Finance Newsletter published an article as your bank failing. One-third of the top 50 savings and loans are failing by government standards. Over half of the top 50 U.S. banks likewise. Personal Finance lists these 100 firms with evaluations of equity and green-yellow-red ratings. It's all coming apart. We broke all the rules. We ended the gold standard. We lowered the cash that banks must keep on hand uh, as against loans. We've loaned to the hilt with no liquidity left. Most mega bankers couldn't run a hot dog stand successfully. Some see the handwriting on the dirty wall. A survey of bankers think the international banking system is vulnerable to a linked collapse. Well, there's much more along the same vein in uh, Schultz's report. I like this comment on another subject. Lunacy has swept Europe. Financing the Soviet pipeline is subsidizing one's execution. It's also bankrolling the slave trade. A hundred thousand forced laborers are building the pipeline. Um, uh, Harry Schultz, by the way, does get the Chalcedon Report, as do a number of other very prominent and interesting personalities. Now, one more item on the banking situation, and this is from a paper I don't subscribe to, but I pick up frequently when I'm away from home, the Wall Street Journal. The front page story for Tuesday, July 27, 1982, is on Wildcat Banking and on the Penn Square Bank failure. I'd like to read just a little bit of this very long article because it gives you something of the flavor of what's happening. For the last five years or so, people around here, Oklahoma City, generally agreed that if all bankers were like young William G. Patterson, the world would be a happier place. At his job as executive vice president in charge of oil and gas loans for fast-growing Penn Square Bank, or after hours as well. Bill Patterson kept everyone in stitches. Loan customers and big city bankers who visited Mr. Patterson's office might find the trim, personable 34-year-old banker wearing a Mickey Mouse beanie or a hollowed-out duck decoy on his head. And waiters at Cowboys, a favorite country and western disco and watering hole here, remember fondly the high times when he would show up with his entourage. He would sometimes drink beer out of his boot or stuff a whole roast quail in his pocket, a lanky, jean-clad waiter recalls. One night he rolled up to Cowboys in a motor home and set up his own party in the parking lot. But the fun is over for now. On July 5, worried federal officials closed Penn Square and now are liquidating it. The bank's breakdown has threatened the financial condition of 20 savings and loan institutions and 150 credit unions and carved huge holes in the income accounts of big city banks that bought some $2 billion of energy loans participations from young Mr. Patterson. Already more than a score of civil lawsuits have been filed and many more are in prospect as the list of victims grows. Meanwhile, investigation of possible fraud and mismanagement at the bank are either underway or imminent by the FBI, the House Banking Committee, 
and a federal grand jury. Questions are being raised, too, about the withdrawal of tens of millions of dollars of deposits in the days just before the U.S. comptroller of the currency ordered Penn Square closed. One young oil man who says he pulled more than half a million dollars out of the bank on July 1 says, I got a tip from a friend of mine, a federal bank examiner. Clifton Poole, the Dallas-based regional administrator of national banks, whose examiners descended on Penn Square the week before it closed, say, says, I would be shocked and disappointed if that is true, but I honestly don't think it is. Generally, our examiners are young people in their 20s who wouldn't have social relationships with people having that magnitude of money. Penn Square officials say they have been advised by their attorneys not to discuss any aspect of the collapse. Well, there's much more to this ugly story, but the interesting thing is, of course, that the bank examiners didn't see it until too late. Well, when you have 20-year-old bank examiners, young men in their 20s who are green to the world of finance, they're either going to be intimidated by the bankers or else they're going to act like bullies and try to push them around to show that they know it all. This is what I've been told by a banker friend who passed away not too long ago. The same is true, by the way, of the IRS. The good men leave after a while for better jobs. The no-account ones stay in the bureaucracy and get the wool pulled over their eyes or indulge in bullying tactics. So, that's the situation. Now, the interesting thing is the bankers who were sucked in and the credit union managers were incredibly naive. They bought into uh, whatever deal it was that Penn Square had to offer because of higher interest rates, higher dividends, or whatever the case was. They should have known that it is a risky outfit that offers higher interest in order to lure more money to itself. It was an obvious giveaway, but none of them had the common sense to see what was happening. There is every right reason to believe that the same thing is going to be repeated elsewhere. Well, while we're still on the subject of finances, here's another interesting point. This is from Private Practice for July 1982. This is a medical journal, the Physician's Journal it is called, for general practitioners. An excellent article in it by David A. Williams entitled Cost Shifting. If you've complained about the high cost of going to a hospital, it's important for you to know this. Because you are paying as a private patient for Medicare costs. Let me read just a little bit of what Williams has to say. The cost-shifting issue may well become the medical sleeper of the 1980s generally discussed among certain segments of the medical community, primarily non-profit hospitals and allied insurance groups. It is now the focus of a million-dollar advertising campaign conducted by the Health Insurance Association of America. Appearing in national magazines reaching 30 million to 40 million, the ad shows a doctor, head bowed, hand to brow, sitting at his desk. In bold type are the words, his hospital is dying. Cost shifting is killing it. In his Washington, D.C. office, James L. Moorfield, president of the HIAA, said the ad campaign is the first step in the industry's effort to fight cost shifting. Moorfield said the shift is reflected in the increase in premiums, which our companies have to pass on to the public. The HIAA, which represents 310 of the more than 700 private health insurers, sees cost shifting as a threat to its continued financial health. 
In the spring of 1981, it sponsored a survey in which a cross-section of 1,000 people were asked about cost-shifting. The survey revealed that although most of the respondents knew nothing about it, when cost-shifting was explained to them, 78% disapproved of the practice. 66% said they viewed the problem as either very serious or extremely serious. Cost-shifting is defined as when hospitals are forced to shift a larger and larger portion of the cost of treating Medicare and Medicaid patients to private sector patients when government payments do not meet the actual cost of treating those Medicare and Medicaid patients. For an idea of what cost-shifting means in actual dollars, consider the period 1975 to 1979. In 1975, the government, Medicare Medicaid, paid $125 per patient per day, while private sector patients paid $137 a day, a differential of $12. In 1976, the figures were 141 and 160, respectively, with a differential of $19. 1977, 160 and 185, a $25 differential. 1978, 178 and 211, with a $33 differential. 1979, 198 and $239, a $41 differential. The federal government payment shortfall in those years was 1975, one point one a billion, and so on, until the projection for nineteen eighty two is six billion dollars. Thus, the government's hospital cost shift is increasing at nearly one billion dollars per year. Unquote. Now, it's not only the cost shift but it's also the delay in the payments by Medicare and Medicaid, which also adds to your cost. This is not mentioned in the article, but that's a very important factor. So what we are seeing is the destruction of the insurance companies because they are being compelled to charge the private sector and your health insurance program with a private insurance company for what the federal government will not pay. I believe that that differential is going to increase vastly in the years ahead so that any projection they are making is going to be far surpassed because with spiraling inflation, Medicare and Medicaid will simply not keep pace with what is happening. Now to a different subject. The members' report of the Conservative Caucus for, uh, I believe, this month, Volume 6, Number 4, has a note on the front page from the National Director Howard Phillips. President Reagan, I'm quoting, has taken the wrong advice from Secretary of State Alexander Haig concerning a decision to formally proceed with unilateral U.S. adherence to the provisions of the SALT I Treaty, which expired in 1977, and the SALT II Treaty, which was never ratified. By this dangerous and misguided decision, the Reagan administration is jeopardizing the defense of the United States and the safety of every citizen. Please write to President Reagan today and let him have your views on this crucial subject. Unquote. The whole issue is devoted to this subject and is a very, very important statement. If you want a copy, send a contribution to uh, the Conservative Caucus for their June 1982 Members' Report to 450 Maple Avenue East, 
Vienna, Virginia, 22180. To me, what this fact tells us is that Reagan is up to his usual tricks, going in all directions at the same time. This is what he did as governor of California and what he is doing as president. Something for everybody. So that you can always find something and hope that this is the direction that uh, Mr. Reagan is going to take and feel encouraged that he has done something for you. He's given us a strong anti-communist line again and again in his speeches. He's talked about building up national defense dramatically. At the same time, he's going to abide by SALT one and SALT two. One, a treaty that has expired, and the other one that has never been ratified. When it is obvious that the Soviet Union will not abide by either. Now, it's obvious he cannot increase national defense and protect us against any Soviet threat, and at the same time, meet the terms of SALT one and SALT two. As usual, Reagan is going in all directions at the same time. The sad fact is that I encounter people who read a particular statement or see a particular measure introduced and say, aha, he is living up to his campaign promises. Well, <laughs> all he has done is to indulge in his usual habit of going everywhere and in every direction all the time. So there is no good news there. There was a letter smuggled out of Communist China to the New York Times and reprinted in the China letter by the Committee for a Free China. I'll read just a few sentences about it. The government, he says, is going to tighten up its controls on the intellectuals for the following reasons. First is that the Maoists are coming back to power. And after the past four years' unsuccessful experiment in modernization, they have discovered the wisdom and convenience of Mao's design of a police state. Then the writer goes on to say, the government is trying desperately to prevent people from waking up to the ultimate truth that what is needed most in China is not modernization but a democratic government. An interesting phenomenon nowadays is that when the government calls on people to do something, they at once start doing the opposite. The literature officially criticized is always the bestseller while the films praised by the official press have pitifully small audiences. Now to refer briefly to a couple of other things. In the Public Interest magazine for uh, the summer 1982, which can be had from... Uh, 10 East 53rd Street, New York, 10022. And the price per copy is 350. There is an important article behind the tax-exempt school debate. All those who are concerned with the battle for the freedom of the schools should uh, read this article because uh, the point he makes is that the attempt now is to convert the issue of religious freedom into another issue which will justify destroying religious freedom, namely civil rights. But as he points out, segregation is not the issue. The author deals very ably with the morality of tax exemptions. And his argumentation 
is uh, particularly good at this point. Uh, he summarizes the history of tax-exempt litigation and has a good account of the Green case, although I think he leans over backwards to be gracious to the courts at this point. And perhaps it's to avoid crusading because he does uh, deal with the threat of judicial power very judiciously. The point he makes is that the lawyers and critics who are all for, for example, taking away tax exemption from Bob Jones University and others, um, equate the rule of law with judicial sovereignty. And he says, and this essentially was the position of the critics. The law is whatever a judge says it is. And once a judicial judgment is expressed in one case, it becomes binding on the executives in all others. We are seeing a very real tyranny of the courts. It comes from humanism. And, um, this, is, this has nothing to do with what... Uh, uh, Jeremy Rapkin has to say in behind the tax-exempt school debate. But right now, pro-life people are facing a major threat. They are being taken to court because of their picketing and sued for slander. The premise is that since abortion is now legal, it cannot be said that they are doing anything morally wrong. And for people to picket and to act as though there's something wrong with abortion is to slander the abortionist clinics and doctors. In Pennsylvania, a lawsuit along these lines has been won by the abortionists. The implication of this is far-reaching. It means that once a thing is law, it is wrong to uh, criticize it. It is the premise of totalitarianism. You cannot bring a moral judgment or any kind of judgment to bear upon any act of state if it is legal. You cannot say, then, the implication is that the income tax is immoral. You cannot say that uh, you're against war, if we're waging war or considering going to war. You cannot criticize any environmental policy and so on. You equate moral rightness with enacted legislation. Now, that's a logical position if there is no higher law. If God does not exist as Lord over all nations. Some years ago, Hallowell, in the early 30s, I believe it was, did an exceptionally important study of the legal doctrines behind Nazism, liberal doctrines. What happened, he said, in Germany was that as men departed from the faith, they denied any doctrine of higher law. There was only positive law, that is, state-enacted law. Well, if there be no law above the state, then what the state does is ipso facto right. The logical conclusion to all of this was exactly what Nazi Germany represented and, of course, what the Soviet Union continues to represent. And this is why the differences between us and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union lessen day by day. Because given the premise that there is no higher law that judges men and nations, no law above and beyond man's law, then sooner or later, 
you're going to say, let man's will be done and what man decrees is ipso facto right. Our Supreme Court is very close to the position of Hitler. Theoretically, they are there already. They still have lacked the moral courage to make the final steps into outright Nazism and Marxism. But you cannot admit a higher law into a context without saying, then all law must be judged and the state cannot be absolute. The state cannot be totalitarian. The state cannot identify itself with justice as though what it says is ipso facto just. Well, the article is a very important one that Rabkin has written. He does say in conclusion that feminists are already trying to get sex discrimination on the agenda for tax policy. This would mean that churches that will not ordain women should have their tax exemption. It is easy to imagine many other groups suing to bring tax policy into line with their public policy goals if the Supreme Court does not now emphatically reserve such decisions for Congress. Better, we would say, make such uh, decisions impossible. The point that Rabkin makes here is exactly what a number of us, Attorney William Ball, Howard Phillips, Paul Weirich, and um, Ron Godwin and myself made when we met with Mr. Meese and the Justice Department attorneys in January with regard to the President's bill on the subject. The uh, last paragraph to continue. The civil rights activists still seem to believe the Supreme Court will decide not to question past precedents, however untenable. And careerists in the Justice Department have already issued two mass letters of protest against attempted policy shifts by the new attorney, assistant attorney general for civil rights, and seem anxious to drive home the lesson. The courts are not to be challenged in policy questions that can be labeled civil rights. But if the court succeeds in imparting that lesson, it will have to take on the burden of disciplining activist judges in the lower courts on its own. And the Supreme Court must realize that if it fails in that task, it may ultimately face challenges from Congress that are far more threatening to judicial authority than anything in the current tax exemption controversy, unquote. A very important article. Then a brief note on something in Christianity Today for July 16, 1982, about the fact that in Egypt the persecution of Christians, of the Coptic churches, is being stepped up. Most recently, the Coptic Evangelical Church monthly magazine, El Hoda, was closed down. And there are hundreds of Coptic Christians who are in detention centers, as they are called, for the faith. It's sad that we don't hear more in the press generally about this fact. Now on to something else. One of uh, you, uh, Captain Blake Blakey of the U.S. Navy, uh, sent me and asked for my comments on the interview by Dr. Thomas Shaws, the psychiatrist, in the review of the news for July 14, 1982, and Mr. and Mrs. R.W. Price of Houston, Texas, also asked that I comment on it. I have read Dr. Shaw's books, several of them, about four or five, and he is a most stimulating writer as he deals with the myth of mental sickness. 
he is very outspoken in his uh, critique of psychiatry. And he has said that uh, in this interview that if the psychiatric profession had not attached itself so intimately to government coercion, mental hospitals, and court-ordered referrals, its practitioners would be on the breadline. Now, he believes uh, psychiatry to be a pseudoscience, moral religion disguised as a science. Now, when he says that, what he really means is he doesn't think much of it because he has no use for religion. Uh, and he says sanity is entirely a social judgment. Very few people were found to be mad in Elizabethan England, only a few hundred out of several million. But now we hear psychiatrists talking about 25 to 40 percent of the population being mentally ill. And so, he says, we have the kind of thing we had in the Hinckley case. And even Mr. Reagan said in his news conference that Hinckley was sick, not that he was a criminal. So, he says, we're faced with a problem. Very briefly, he says, I think psychiatry is essentially a replacement for the preeminence of the Christian religion in Western Europe, which went into a steep decline starting in the 17th century, continuing through the Enlightenment and into our own time. He adds also, and very accurately, that the clergy in this country, both Christian and Jewish, has been completely sold on psychiatry. And uh, Mr. Reese, the questioner, says, Yes, I cannot recall any gloss on the Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt not commit murder, unless your psychiatrist assures you the murder will relieve you of irresistible urges and compulsions and will make you feel better once that other person is dead. Very good observation. Now, Dr. Shaw's is a very brilliant writer, very stimulating writer, and I have enjoyed his books, and I own, I think, four or five of them. He is a radical libertarian, so that for him, any concept of good and evil as we have it is lacking. He is right in that insanity, unless it is a physical ailment caused by senility or venereal diseases such as paresis, is indeed a social judgment. We cannot excuse crime on the basis of ostensible insanity. Our Christian faith allows no such judgment on our part. As a result, we would have to say we agree with Dr. Shaw's emphatically, but we cannot agree with his premise, which ultimately says there is only the individual, not an objective good and evil in this world. Now to another subject. Since a number of you have expressed uh, appreciation of any comments about the Russian scene. I'd like to comment on the work of Paul Milyukov. This is an older work, first uh, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 1942 and several times since. Yukov wrote his Outlines of Russian Culture, and part one was Religion and the Church. Now, Yukov, as a Russian, is really unsparing of the Russian Church. He calls attention to the fact that it was very heavily anti-intellectual and anti-practical, we would say, in its emphasis otherworldly and formalistic. 
He cites, for example, the fact that uh, thinking was assigned a very humble place among the uh, Petersky ascetics of the Petersky Monastery, a very important and influential group. And by way of illustration, and I quote, in one of the Petersky legends, the love of reading was represented characteristically as a means of diabolical temptation. <laughs> With my love of reading that... <laughs> would certainly have disqualified me there and with my library of twenty-five, thirty thousand books. Well, to continue. To one of the brethren, Nikita the Anchorite, the devil appeared in the form of an angel and said, Thou must not pray but read books. Through them thou shalt hold communion with the Lord so that thou canst give a helpful word to them who come to thee while I shall pray continually for thy salvation. Thus tempted, the monk, trusting in the prayer of the alleged angel, ceased praying and applied himself only to study and reading. To those who came to him, he spoke of the grace of the Spirit and prophesied. Knowing that the learned brother knew the books of the Old Testament by heart, but did not want either to see the gospel and the epistles or listen to them, the brethren understood it, as a sign that Nikita had been tempted by the devil. Then the ascetics gathered together and after a general council drove away the devil from Nikita by such powerful means that all knowledge left him at once. Naturally, under the circumstances, there could be little scholarship or knowledge of the scriptures among the Petersky brethren. Well, uh, oh, let me add that... Uh, the record says of these people that only one man in this monastery in the early year, formative years spoke Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The language is so indispensable to a serious study of theology. But even he was possessed of an evil spirit and lost all learning when the devil was expelled from him. <laughs> Perhaps he lost it because he decided it was dangerous to continue to show any knowledge of Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Well, we have that element in uh, many churches uh, of our day. I've heard more than once people condemn head knowledge and opt for heart knowledge. Head knowledge being knowing the scriptures, knowing them by heart and loving them and citing scriptures. What they want is heart knowledge or pious gush. Well, uh, Milyukov goes on to describe what happened in uh, the development of uh, the faith East and West, the birth of pietism uh, in Germany describes. It was there that the movement against religious formalism passed through two important stages. During the first of them, the church tradition was repudiated, and it was considered possible to base the faith on the direct instructions of, the, of its founder as expressed in the gospel. In other words, New Testament Christianity. Forget about the Old Testament, forget about the epistles, um, just our Lord's words, as though these are not integrally related to the whole Word of God. This stage of protest corresponded to the evangelical Christianity of the Germanic world. During the second stage, even the gospel was regarded as a superfluous intermediary between the Lord and his people. It was conceived that direct communion with a deity could be arranged, worshiping God in the spirit and finding his reflection in one's own soul. The abode of the Holy Ghost was admitted to be in the heart of every true Christian. At this stage, religion had broken all the bonds of tradition and the Holy Scriptures and had departed from the field of the positive revealed religion, transforming itself into spiritual Christianity. He says this did leave its mark on uh, Russia, but basically the ritualism and formalism remained.
so that uh, there was no emphasis on content in the faith, whether one was uh, pietistic or formalistic, the content was lacking. Pious gush or uh, rituals replaced the faith. On top of this, uh, anton- well, naturally, antinomianism developed. And he cites some amazing examples of it among the priestless for example, the ideas of the priestless on marriage were combined with those of the spiritual Christians on free love. Matrimony was lust, free love, a love in Christ. In the further development of the doctrine, there appeared an antinomian justification for those views. Once the spirit guided the will, man was no longer responsible for his actions and was free to disobey the external dictates of law and ethics. More than that, to yield to the desires of the flesh was one of the ways, and perhaps the shortest one, towards its mortification. Well, there's much more about the aberrations in every direction of the uh, faith in the Soviet Union or in in old Russia without a clear grounding in the whole of the Bible and without a firm basis in biblical law, we would add. On top of that, because the church was so radically and totally controlled by the state, the clergy of the established church were held in very, very low repute. In fact, it became so difficult a task, so unpleasant a one to be a priest, that the only way the clergy could be kept in the church was to freeze them there and say that their children had to be priests also. Otherwise, the church would have been priestless. It was only in 1869 that a decree released the children of clergymen and church servants from the obligation of pursuing their father's calling. The net result was that the clergy were held in disrespect. Their educational uh, qualifications were nil. It was something they were condemned to like a man to prison. And the net result was that the church, totally controlled by the government, had an incompetent clergy, and it was the exceptional man who took seriously the faith and was a good and faithful priest. The faith of the people, therefore, was an ignorant one. It was not nourished or fed by any real knowledge of Scripture. As a result, the consequences were very serious. There was no real Christian resistance of any considerable sort to the tendencies of the country that led to the revolution. Now, amazingly, a large number of the clergy did resist, far more than people appreciate. But it was because there had been about 50 years of relative freedom so that men could go into the priesthood by choice. But in that short span of time, there was insufficient opportunity for the church nor insufficient freedom to develop a strong clergy that would enable the people to make a stand against the ugly forces of socialism and humanism. What is surprising is that With that kind of an ignorant background, so much faith did remain among the uh, people in the uh, Russian populace and today in the Soviet Union. Now on to another subject. Over the years, I bought and read a great many books on slavery, ancient 
and modern slavery. And the sad fact is there is very little that, besides being factually sound up to a point, really assesses the subject accurately or carefully. The fact is that uh, the overall term slavery hardly fits the variety of practices that have taken place. Now, in the Bible, ostensibly, we have slavery, but it, we would not call it slavery, but bond service, more technically. The term slave exists in the Bible, but anyone who was taken into bond service had to be released on the seventh year if he were a Hebrew. If he were not a Hebrew, but someone who had been bought from slave traders, the moment he became converted and every effort was to uh, be made to convert him, he had to be released. Now, this is hardly slavery. And the fact that this kind of practice persisted among the Jews in the Middle Ages accounts for a very large number of the Jews of Europe. This is why genetic studies, blood studies, have indicated that French Jews are no different than the French people. German Jews are really German. They may have some old Jewish blood, but they are essentially Germans or Austrians or Russians or Spaniards, Italians, English, or whatever the case may be. Because the greater majority of the Jewish populations in those countries are descendants of local peoples who were sold, who were bought by Jewish merchants, who became converts very quickly and were set free and became a part of the Jewish community. We know that for a fact. Well, but to go on to other things, in many countries like Rome, slavery was ugly to an extent we do not comprehend today. There was possibility sometimes with good families for a slave to advance dramatically or even gain his freedom. But we do know that if uh, Rome was very successful on the military fronts and had a lot of captives to bring home and sell as slaves, slaves were very cheap. It did not pay to breed them in your own family. And so the Romans had a very simple device for that. They castrated the male slaves. It was cheaper to buy one ready-made in the market than to pay for the upkeep of one until you could use him. Slavery had its brutal sides that we don't comprehend because we cannot even imagine anyone doing something like that. At least I hope not. Uh, Southern slavery had its ugly aspects, but it had far more uh, kindliness to it than present-day historians are ready to grant. It began because the Old Testament laws were abrogated, first of all, in Virginia. I've referred to this before, but it's worth bringing up again. The first blacks who were landed in the colonies were not bought as slaves, but as bond servants to be freed when they had paid for their passage through labor. And some of these were freed. In fact, one-tenth of all the Negroes in the South were free men. That's an item that uh, most people don't know about. It was only after a little time had passed that ungodly men in Virginia and then in other states passed laws abrogating the validity of biblical law at that point. In fact, uh, one of the things that precipitated it was that some of the Negroes were going to court fairly early after they learned to read and write and knew the Bible and become converted and wanted a very early end to their uh, period of servitude. So, 
slavery has a very diverse history, and it is important for us to recognize this. In some cultures, the slave was like a member of the family. He had uh, a status which uh, was almost comparable to that of a younger son in older England, England of the last century, when primogeniture gave everything to the older son, and very minor provisions were made for younger sons, and then they were sent away. The slaves were not sent away, but they had some place in the estate. So the fact of slavery has differed from culture to culture. And uh, our problem is that we have said slavery is immoral. Right, granted. But then we proceeded to say that uh, all slavery everywhere has been one and the same thing. And that is not sound historiography. What I'm trying to say is the historiography that is being brought to bear on the subject of slavery is not sound. It does not differentiate between the practices of various cultures. And while sometimes the slavery in Africa was very brutal, at other times the slave was very much a part of the family, very much so. So even within the tribes of Africa, the practice of slavery had great differences. Well, I will add something that I've often emphasized. Slavery has not been abolished. The slave market is very much a going thing in Africa and elsewhere. But the major form of slavery today is not private ownership, but state ownership. The Soviet Union has millions of slaves. We are pushing our people step by step into slavery. Slavery is ownership in the labor of another human being. Today, the federal government has a growing percentage of ownership in our labor through its tax program. It has passed the legitimate bound. Now, I'm repeating myself here and something I've said before, but I, I'm afraid some people have not fully understood that. The Constitution, after 1864, passed laws abolishing the private ownership of slaves. The courts have made it clear that this does not apply to public ownership. The federal government can compel any of us to involuntary servitude in filling out government forms, in withholding tax from uh, employees, and so on, all without pay. It means in even moderate-sized businesses, a full-time employee just to handle the bookkeeping for the federal government. That is involuntary servitude. If the Constitution means anything, it is involuntary servitude. But the courts have made it clear they will not hear that argument. Well, I believe we're moving into a battle between freedom and slavery in this country. I believe that the forces of freedom are gaining ground, and that's why the battle is heating up. I believe we're going to see, because of the matters I dealt with earlier, the bank problems, more inflation, incompetence, in Washington, going to see the breakdown of the forces of slavery. We're seeing the breakdown of the old humanistic statist order, and we're going to see a new birth of freedom, God willing. And that's what we're working for and praying for emphatically. 
Well, it's been good to be with you again. Uh, hopefully next time I'm going to have some things perhaps in a lighter vein. But uh, I did want to share these things with you. Thank you for listening and God bless you.